Hello and welcome to the menu on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next half an hour we meet one of California's most famed chefs and restaurateurs, Nancy Silverton. I really am very happy when I read that there was a customer that had an issue, but it was solved by their server or the management, you know, and that we looked after them because it's important, you know. A restaurant is not only about the food. Then we cross over to Barcelona, where one of the city's greatest food markets is enjoying a huge post-pandemic bounce back. We are so excited to be back after two years, two years of uh, pause. It was a time for uh, yeah, thinking and doing other projects, and now we are back more happy than ever. All that and a dinner soundtrack recommendation ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle 24. Nancy Silverton is one of the most famous Californian chefs, restaurateurs and authors who is also credited with playing a significant role in popularizing artisan and sourdough breads in the US. Last year she opened Pizzeria Mozza in London's Treehouse Hotel. It's an extension of her LA business of the same name and that's what recently brought her back to the capital and also to our studios here at Midori House. I met up with Nancy to discuss her career and its milestones, her idea of great hospitality and the special connection she has with London. So back in 1977, I went to the Cordon Bleu and the Cordon Bleu was on Marleybone Lane at that time. It's no longer on that street. It has moved, but it's certainly still in London. And I just think it's just so ironic that I'm back in the same neighborhood with a restaurant here. When I did go to school, I have to say, and I am not ashamed to tell everybody that I wasn't such a promising student, or at really? least not to my teachers at the Cordon Bleu. I think they looked at me all the time because I was always questioning the recipes that they were giving me and asking questions such as, do I have to use this much sugar? Or does this pudding really need that many eggs, you know, and they were very strict there at the time and very traditional, you know, it's all based on French technique. And so they would just always give me such a look when I would question the recipes, like how could I ever question a French recipe that's been around for decades, right, and think that I could come up with something better. So I think that they would all be so proud in the fact that I'm a graduate and that I've had a successful career and I own several restaurants and I'm back in London. I'm wondering if it's that curious mind and that approach of questioning things that has taken you so far. I think absolutely. You know, when I think about how I developed the repertoire of breads that I eventually developed when I started La Brea Bakery, this was back in actually 1989, La Brea Bakery. I don't even know if you're familiar with this bakery that I started in Los Angeles, but I started a bakery in Los Angeles really not knowing how to make a loaf of bread. And even though it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, back then there weren't the bakeries that worldwide are around. I mean, certainly in France, there were a lot of great, great bakeries that made the kinds of breads that I wanted to make, but not in America. And I'm not even sure here in London, but there weren't the people to talk to, to learn from. There weren't the books to bake from. There weren't the schools to take baking recipes. So I really had to teach myself in that same way that I questioned 
my teachers at the Cordon Bleu, I sort of questioned each loaf of bread that I baked. Like, how could I make it better? Or what mm-hmm. if I tweaked it this way? And it was a long and sort of sometimes very painful journey. But I think in the end, I'm really proud of what I created. I'd like to hear how much you've been questioning these old ideas of what pizza should be like, for example, because obviously one of the reasons why you are here in London is Pizzeria Mozza, which is actually not too far away from our office. Can you first tell us about the concept and what you think the highlights are in the menu? Well, you know, Pizzeria Mozza really is a transplant of Pizzeria Mozza in Los Angeles. So even though opening up a new restaurant is very challenging, especially in a different country, not only in training the staff, but also in procuring all of the ingredients that are ones that I'm used to and comfortable with enough to make the dishes that we make in Los Angeles. But on the other hand, it's not creating a new concept. You know, I picked up Pizzeria Mozza in Los Angeles and flew it across the Atlantic and ended up in the Marlebone neighborhood. But, of course, there's lots of challenges, including winning over London, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to come here and say, I am here and I am going to teach you and I am going to show you what a pizzeria is all about. You know, you got to come over here with some humility and an open ear. We try to listen to our customers and try to tweak some of the recipes so maybe they're more towards the English palate. And I know I had a similar challenge when I opened up my first pizzeria outside of the United States, which was in Singapore. Same thing, you know, the Singaporeans had, you know, some of their own likes and dislikes with what we did. You know, saltiness was always an issue in Singapore. What about Um, in London? In London, let's see what we're finding. Certain things that I think would be such an easy success is not always such an easy success. Like, for instance, one of our most popular pizzas in Los Angeles is a simple white pizza where we have four different types of cheese. It's not one with tomato sauce. It's a white pizza. And yet, it's not one that's It's not embraced here. And so we're going to take it off the menu and replace it with another pizza, right? So, And that's fine. I'm not offended by it or hurt by it. It's just that we want to be a crowd pleaser. It's a fascinating observation hearing about different palates in different cities. Do you think you need a different approach in hospitality as well? When you think about your principles in regards to what you think good hospitality is, do you think the staff will need to do different things in, say, Singapore or in London compared to what's happening in L.A.? Well, you know, I think that hospitality is hospitality. So I think that the diner wants to be looked after. I think the diner wants to feel that the restaurant is noticing if there's some concerns or dislikes and they're attended to. And so that's just universal hospitality. And we certainly try to give that here. And I think that our guests at the pizzeria definitely wanted. And when I read the comments, because I see them every day, you know, we have the opportunity for customers to leave, you know, through Open Table, which is the reservation system, to leave their remarks. And I certainly read them every day and I get them every day. And it's not like everybody leaves something, but I, I look at everybody. And I think that I really am very happy when I read that there was a customer that had an issue but it was solved by their server or the management, you know, and that we looked after them because it's important, you know. A restaurant is not only about the food. 
I'm wondering, I've been reading reviews in London now that people have been writing and, and critics have been writing about your restaurant, Pizzeria Mozza, and, and one thing they're mentioning is the dough all the time. What is the secret? Never a secret, by the way. <laughs> so I don't believe that there's any secrets in cooking or special recipes or secret recipes that we would never divulge. So that's certainly not an issue. It's just the pizza and the dough is the dough that I created from the eyes and the palate of a bread baker. So when somebody wants to eat a pizza at the pizzeria, whether it's in London or Los Angeles or Singapore or anywhere else that we have one, and they want to say to me, this is not a pizza because I had pizza when I was in Naples and that's a pizza. Well, according to who, you know, I think that there's a lot of room for a lot of different kinds of pizza. And this is my pizza. And those that have a positive response to it are saying they too like that style of pizza. And those that say, no, it's, you know, I like the thin crust. Well, that's a great pizza too. Or I like the wetter dough or the wetter pizza like you do often find in Naples, right? And that's also okay, but this is my pizza and I stand behind it. How about that? <laughs> Sounds very good. You've been really busy recently. Obviously, pandemic wasn't easy for anyone, but you still managed to open another restaurant in LA as well. You opened Bearish over there. I opened actually two restaurants Gosh. during the pandemic. Three if you count London and four if you count Cabo San Lucas. However, let's talk about Los Angeles. I did open a quick serve restaurant in a very small food court. And the name of that restaurant is Pizzette. And what I do there is I make very small pizzas, probably almost half the size of the pizza that we serve at Pizzeria Moza. And it's meant to, because in the area where we open, there's lots and lots of office buildings with offices that are not occupied, by the way, because we are still in the midst of the pandemic, and people, people are not <laughs> working in offices. But that's what it was built for, for people to take a small pizza back to their office to work. But the restaurant that you're mentioning is called The Bearish, and it's a restaurant that I was able to open in a very historic hotel in Los Angeles called the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. It was built around 1920. It was the home of the first Academy Awards. So it has a real Hollywood aspect to it. But I was able to honor my father's mother's side of the family, who were cattle farmers in Saskatchewan, Canada, and their last name was Barish. So I named it the Barish. It's an Italian steakhouse. And it's more of a relaxed environment than the other restaurants that I have that tend to be a little bit faster pace, maybe a little bit, I don't want to say this is fine dining or any more fine dining than the other restaurants that I have. And I'm not talking about the pizzeria because I also in Los Angeles have a restaurant called Osteria Moza and Key Spaca, which are right next to the pizzeria in Los Angeles. But this one is sort of more of a hotel more leisurely dining experience. We have a big hearth in there where you can watch all your food being grilled or cooked in the oven. Very elegant. I really am so proud of that restaurant. You're so busy at the moment. There's quite a few restaurants you just mentioned over there. How do you stay on top of all that's happening in these places? You know, so far, and I only mean so far because that has to come to an end too because I will deplete all of the great people that I have working with me. But I have to say, I have such competent people that I trust that really are the ones that 
stand behind me and enable me to open the restaurants that I've opened. Like, for instance, Pizzeria Mozza here in London, Carla, who is the chef, she came from working at the pizzeria that we opened in Singapore. And before that, she worked at the pizzeria in Los Angeles. And before that, she worked at my former restaurant, Campanile. So she goes way back. She has so much of me in her blood, you know, that I know that when she's here with her watchful eye and her very discerning palate and her care, that she is delivering the same experience at Pizzeria Mozza in London that you would get if I was at Pizzeria Mozza in Los Angeles. I'm trying not to mention the P word too often, but I think I've done it a couple of times already, pandemic. Obviously, it was hard for everyone, but I'm wondering, before we started this interview, you talked about how your restaurants were empty as well, and you were kind of wondering what the future may bring. Do you think you learned some valuable lessons from that experience? Well, first of all, it really helped me to appreciate the people that stayed with me during the pandemic, I, you know, I wanted to stay open and I wanted to be able to give people work that wanted to work and needed to work. You know, a lot of people really needed that paycheck. They weren't eligible for government subsidy for various reasons. And I wanted to stay open so that they could still get a paycheck. And those that came to work every day knowing that it was a scary place to be. You know, it was scary to leave your house and be amongst fellow workers. And yet they came and they were there. And that was just such a heartwarming feeling for myself. But also, I wanted to be able to provide the food that people were so used to eating in our area that it meant so much because everyone was locked in their house. And they couldn't go and eat at other restaurants, but to be able to take food home, you know. So we did make that decision to stay open, and we prepared a lot of box meals that were taken home. But another business sort of lesson that I learned and a lot of my friends that are in the business also learned is that we could do with a lot less. And I mean a lot less as far as the amount of people that we needed or we thought that we needed for our businesses to work. And that was sort of an awakening that I didn't need the amount of assistance that I really needed and I didn't need quite the amount of managers and I didn't need a lot of the layers that we are not replacing even though we're open to full capacity now. What kind of layers are you talking about? I'm talking about certain management layers, certain, like, for lack of a better word, some of the fluff that, you know, kind of you thought, oh, well, I need somebody that only does this job. But you really don't. You know, there's a lot of other people, including myself, that can take care of some of those. Just finally, Nancy, um, I'm just wondering what kind of future plans you have at the moment. Well, I'm finishing, I think, my 10th book this month. It's going to be a baking book, and it's a book that... I've really worked on over 100 recipes. Probably they're more classic American recipes than anything else. Recipes like angel food cake. I don't know if some of my listeners even know what an angel food cake is. A three-layer yellow cake with chocolate frosting. But all these classic, you know, an oatmeal cookie, a chocolate chip cookie, all these recipes. But trying to really focus in on them and make the absolute best version So that when people are craving some of these classic recipes, they only have to go to one book. That's mine. (laughs) How about that for an egotistical book? (laughs) 
<laughs> so that's I'm finishing that. And then I have a handful of, and when I say a handful, probably four restaurant opportunities, four new restaurant opportunities that I'm looking at right now. Whereabouts? Well, how about Washington, D.C.? And how about Miami, New York? I'm looking at Saudi Arabia, sort of far away, and back in Singapore. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. So that's why I was saying, up until now, I've had such great people to march alongside of me, but there's fewer and fewer of those around. So I need to, if any of you out there is a great restaurant, need a job, I'm hiring. How about that? Nancy Silverton there. You are with The Menu on Monaco 24. Up next, the menu news. Here is Monaco's Maylie Evans. Thanks, Marcus. First up to Bordeaux, where the region's trade share of the secondary wine market has fallen to an all-time low. Amid stiff competition from Burgundy, Tuscany and California, a new report reveals that Bordeaux's market share fell to 37.7% in 2021 and currently sits at about 32%. It's the first time Bordeaux's share has fallen beneath 40% and the French region of Burgundy has emerged as the region's main challenger. Now we head to Thailand, where shipments of rice are surging, as buyers hunt for alternatives to Russian and Ukrainian grains. This comes in the middle of the continuing global food crisis, the result of Moscow's invasion. Thailand's rice shipments soared by 28% in the first two months of this year, compared to the same time last year. The Southeast Asian nation is, however, set to meet this new demand. Thailand is expected to produce around 23 million tonnes of milled rice, and half of that will head overseas. And finally, a distillery in Scotland has unveiled their latest unusual experiment. The Ardbeg distillery team buried two already matured casks underneath peat bogs to explore how extreme conditions would affect further maturation on the whisky. The result of the Fonorge whisky is a unique taste with earthy, mossy notes. It's fair to say that some might dig that more than others. That's all for this week. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Maylie. You are with The Menu on Monocle 24. Three times a year, Barcelona's culinary community assembles on the grounds of the Teatre Nacional de Catalunya for the All Those Food Market. It's an event that brings together some 80 artisan producers, ranging from urban cheesemongers to honeymakers from the Catalan countryside. Visitors can also sample dishes from food trucks run by some of Barcelona's best respected restaurants. The market ran its first edition in 2014 but was forced to take a two-year hiatus during the pandemic. Earlier in April, it marked its return and co-founder Vicky Sanglas took Monocle's Hester Underhill on a spin around the site to show her what was in store for their big comeback edition. Hi, this is Vicky, co-founder of All Those Food Market, a food festival where we promote entrepreneurs and artisans in the food industry. Here today we are at Teatro Nacional de Catalunya, a big uh, venue, beautiful, with outdoors and indoors, where we will celebrate the first 2022 edition. This edition we have uh, 16 restaurants cooking, more than 80 artisans and entrepreneurs in the food in the market, and maybe uh, 10 vendors of artisan drinks, like uh, craft beer, natural wines, artisan distilleries, yes. 
I'd say 80% they are from Catalonia. Some of them they are from Barcelona, urban artisans as we call, or from Catalonia. But we have this 15-20% that they are coming from Spain and we are super happy to have them from either Sevilla or north of Spain or Canary Islands. We have a spicy sauce from Canary Island coming. This is one of our very special novelty of this edition. It's called Tamae, and it's a street food restaurant from uh, two very important chefs called Albert Rauric and Eugenie de Diego. We are so happy to have them for the first time. Buenos dias. Okay, here we have a stand of specialty coffee, right side coffee. They are amazing roasters, the ones who started the specialty coffee industry in Spain. And yeah, they, they are with us here today. Definitely one of our, my personal favorites, Gresca. They come here with their barbecue always and they put fire and smokiness in, in the area doing amazing, yeah, like oysters or any, any kind of things in the grill. We are so excited to be back after two years, two years of uh, pause. And yeah, it was a time for uh, yeah, thinking and doing other projects. And now we are back more happy than, than ever. This is the street food area, street food section. We just got here in the morning now. So they are preparing all the opening, the, the grills and the fire and yeah, getting ready for the lunchtime, which is going to be busy since it's a very sunny day here in Barcelona today. Although a bit chilly, it's so sunny that we know it's going to be a busy day. So they are preparing their stalls now for the later lunchtime. It's the first time we go outdoors in this area, in this uh, green grass area. And the building, it's amazing that we can appreciate the building here. It's from Ricardo Bofil, who passed away this year. So it's, well, it's a very special building, this Teatro Nacional, with these columns, which remind so a little bit as a Greek ancient style. This is a drinks area. Something that uh, characterizes our event is that we only promote artisan drinks, so we don't have a big commercial brewery sponsoring. And we have, yeah, craft beer, natural wines... And we have one very knowledge guy. It was a, he was a sommelier of Bar Brutal, uh, very well known in Barcelona place about natural wines. And he's curating a selection of curiosities of wines, special natural wines. Yeah, this is one of our more special things in our in this edition. This is a spicy corner, and we have six spicy sauce makers. Uh, in Spanish, they call themselves salseros, which is like a salsa. So the salsero is they make the sauce. One comes from Fuerteventura, Canary Islands. Another one comes from um, Seville. And the other ones are local, Catalan. And also we have the first farmer of wasabi in the Mediterranean. That one over there, Yamaoi. They grow wasabi wildly here in, in the Pyrenees, which is amazing. This is the main hall where the, all the artisans and entrepreneurs, they are located. And we have, yeah, more than 80, 80 people with their own projects. Everything is handmade, craftsmade, and... Yeah, you can find like things that uh, you're going to enjoy eating, like uh, sweets, olive oil, bread, but also some other things like knives, ceramics, aprons, everything related to the food universe. Here we are seeing Caicho. They are um, chocolate makers. They're coming from the north of Spain. Yeah, it's a bean-to-bar chocolate, and if you try them, taste them, the depth of flavors is spectacular. I really, really recommend you to try them. Over here we have Pinuyet. Pinuyet is an artisan cheesemaker in Gracia neighborhood, and he's an urban cheesemaker. He grabs the milk uh, close by, and yeah, but the cheese is made in the Gracia neighborhood in the middle of the city. Here on the right side we have the, an area for workshops specialized in producers from Costa Brava in Girona. 
So we have yeah, a program, a program of workshops. Like, for example, you can learn how to make your own anchovies because they are so important in La Costa Brava over there. Also, maybe learn how to make your own um, honey as well. Vicky Sangles, co-founder of Barcelona's All Those Food Market, in discussion with Monaco's Hester Underhill. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbours for great recipes. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens and I am Marcus Hippi. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Kylie Minogue and Chocolate. Thanks for listening. 